Please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3, we'll be going through the whole chapter, which is really uh, a set of names. It's a list of names, a list of workers, a list of those who have taken part in the building of the walls, the building of the gates. It is one of those chapters, again, that is perhaps at times difficult for us because it's just a list of names. We look at it and we wonder what can we learn from this? What is, why is this here? But the Holy Spirit of God has saw fit to inspire the writer to put these names here. Because within this, this whole chapter, we, we see a number of different things. We see organization, we see them taking action, we see this this unity among the people, we see this shared enthusiasm among the people. They they, They all worked together. They performed the tasks that were given to them. They had one goal, everybody did their part, and their goal was accomplished. Really, this chapter, just to, to say this in passing as well, that this chapter is really an introductory uh, summary of the building narrative of this book, verses, or excuse me, chapters 4 to 6. But as we work our way through this, and, and as we get into these other chapters, we see something that we need, to, we need to understand that this is not just a building project. This is not just people getting together and say, hey, let's, let's build this over here. This needs to be done. This is a work of a spiritual nature. This is done for the glory of God. This is being done for God's reputation. This is being done for His honor. And we see that within this chapter. God's honor is at stake. And the people have a shared enthusiasm, a shared zeal for the glory and the honor of God. Let's not bring reproach upon Him. Let's bring honor to His name and let's rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and let's rebuild its gates. Because this is the city of the living God. The city of the living God, the one true God, the God who is, should not have a city with broken down walls and burnt gates as if he wasn't powerful enough to keep out the enemies. It should have everything built as it was intended to be, showing the, the splendor of, of, of God, the living God, who had called them out of, out of slavery, who had called them out of all the nations of the earth to be his people. With this shared zeal, each person built behind their house or near their house. Others did a couple of different things. They built back the gates. They built back the walls. And it was, it was, it was to honor God again. It was, it was to show uh, how, how, how committed that they were to Him. 
how much delight that they took in him by performing this work for his honor, for his glory. It's almost, in one sense, almost like a, almost like a little revival that occurs here. Because in one sense, you find that, that these things should have already been done. I mean, they had gotten permission beforehand to actually perform these things that they didn't do. But remember, they started on the temple, temple work stopped, and then it took others, it took the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah to stir the people once again to get back to doing what they should be doing for the honor and the glory of the Lord. And it seemed like once the temple was built and things were going in a good direction, and then it just, the zeal kind of waned off. And instead of continuing this work with the walls, they stopped. And so Nehemiah is sent there. The good hand of the Lord is with him. And he, through the power of the Holy Spirit, of course using him, once again stirs up the people in order to build and, and rebuild certain areas. To consecrate it. To dedicate it to the Lord. And all of this to be done for the honor of their God. They were united. They were a united people. They had unity. They were grounded in truth concerning the God who is. They were united in their purpose to perform the work that they knew had to be done and to be selfless toward one another. Because in order to have unity, you must be grounded in truth for one, but in order to have unity as well, there must be a, a, a desire on everybody's part to prefer the others before yourself. All of these things uh, bring in this, this unity that should exist among the people of God. Nobody complains about what job that they had, even if they had a few different tasks to do. Nobody complains and says, well... Why isn't that this one over here doing it instead of me? Why aren't they helping do another part of the wall? Any of this other stuff. There is nothing like that. They all had a zeal to do it. They all had a desire to do it. The Lord had given them the ability to do it. And there were some who just did the one. There were some who did a couple of different uh, parts of the wall. Some did parts of the wall and gates. It was a joint effort and nobody complained about what they had to do. They did what they knew needed to be done and they delighted in doing it now many of these names perhaps even the people of God who had the scriptures even back then maybe they remembered these names maybe they didn't a lot of these names will be very forgetful to us but these are the ones that the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to write down that they could be shown to have participated in, in, in this in particular endeavor that would be for the generations to come. They left even uh, for the generations to come a, a lasting legacy, a lasting testimony of, of what they had done that benefited the subsequent generations. There's a lot here in this chapter of just the list of names. Again, this is the inspired word of God. And look at the things that we find here. Unity, zeal, enthusiasm for the Lord, 
the honor of the Lord being at stake by how the city is appearing to the nations. And we look at that and we think, well, well, what does that have to do with us? Because that was Old Testament, you know, this, that, and the other. The very symbolism of the city of God in the Old Testament is used in the New to describe the people of God. That's why we need to pay attention. So there's a lot here. So let us give our attention to the Word of God and let us pray in the coming moments that God would work within our hearts to apply this passage uh, to us that we may carry it out for His honor. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, a lot of names here. But let us honor the Lord uh, by honoring this portion of His Word. This is indeed the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us hear the words of the living God. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the tower of the hundred and the tower of Hananel. Next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Emri built. Now the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, made repairs. And next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, the son of Baana also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Joada, the son of Haseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeah, of the Gibeon, and of Mizpah also made repairs for the official seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Herahiah, of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumoth, made repairs opposite his house. And next to him, Hadash, the son of Hashabnia, made repairs. Melchijah, the son of Haram, and Ashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section of the Tower of Furnaces. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Helohesh, the official of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars, and a thousand cubits of the wall to the refuse gate. Milkaijah, the son of Rechab, the official of the district of Bethahertirium, repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Shalom, the son of Hosea, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars in the wall of the pool of Shelah. 
at the king's garden as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, the official of half the district of Bethzur, made repairs as far as a point opposite the tombs of David and as far as the artificial pool and the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites carried out repairs under Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Bavai, the son of Hinadad, official of the other half of the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the official of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the doorway of the house of Elishab, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house, even as far as the end of his house. After him, the priest, the men of the valley, carried out repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashab carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, the son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah as far as the angle and as far as the corner. Halal, the son of Uzai, made repairs in front of the angle and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king, which is by the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, made repairs. The temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. After them, the Tekoites repaired another section in front of the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs, each in front of his house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, carried out repairs in front of his house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, carried out repairs in front of his own quarters. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as, far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants in front of the inspection gate and as far as the upper room of the corner. Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths, and the merchants carried out repairs. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, how we thank you once again for who you are, what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for your word, which reveals to us more of who you are and what it is that you do on behalf of sinners. Thank you that we have the privilege of knowing you and of serving you. Thank you for the privilege of of being used by you. Father, we pray that you would indeed use us in a mighty way to accomplish all you desire, and may we delight in being used by you. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Again, there's a lot of names here. <clears throat> a lot of uh, people that are mentioned, I think around maybe 41 uh, groups here. There's some families in here. Uh, there's, there's listings of 
of the, the location of where it is that they're working. It really begins at the sheep gate. And if you notice, it begins with the sheep gate and then it will end at the sheep gate. And it's showing how all the people are gathered together throughout the entire city of Jerusalem. And it's, it's giving us this information counterclockwise. This one made the repairs in front of their house. This one made the repairs in front of their house. This one built the gates, new bars, all of this. And even, you know, as far as rebuilding the gates, they probably used brand new wood and it was a brand new gate. They're, they're making these repairs. They're building new areas. All of these took, took part in this. Some zealously built, as we had read, <clears throat> as the one there in verse 20, after him Baruch the son of Zabai zealously repaired another section. They didn't just do what they had to do. They delighted in doing more. Whatever was needed, they were desirous to do. You can see the, this scene that's going on. Perhaps every morning, everyone is getting up, everyone is getting ready, and all you hear, perhaps, is people working. The entire city is like one big construction zone. Hammers going. People calling out to others, needing materials. Materials are being brought in. All of this work that is going on, and people are zealously doing the work. Perhaps as they are they're building, they're, they're recognizing what it is that they're doing. They are doing this for the honor and the glory of God. This is the city of our God. This city in which God dwells, in which God has placed His name out of all the places in Israel. He has chosen Jerusalem. He has chosen the city of David. He has chosen this place in order for His people to come, that He would make His presence known within the temple. This is known as the city of our God. Let us rebuild its walls, and let us bring honor to Him, and let us delight in doing so. Everybody's working. The men are out there, they're working. One man, apparently his daughters are there, they're working. They're all united in the purpose of rebuilding the temple, or excuse me, rebuilding the walls. And we see the spiritual nature of this, that this is indeed a sacred place of God, because he begins by Eliashib, the high priest, arose and with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. He starts out with the priest, specifically the high priest, who, if I remember right, is the grandson of Joshua, the high priest. They not only build the sheep gate, but they consecrate it. They dedicate it. They understand the spiritual nature of what they're doing. Again, this isn't just a, a going to, to your workplace or whatever. Something needs to be done, and so we get together and we just build it, and, and then we make this, this build over here. None of this is, is the, the kind of attitude that they have. You know, when you go out to do a roof, you go out to do a roof for a customer, and we do it the best that we can. But there is no consecrating it unto the Lord in this kind of a manner. This, however, is indeed that setting. 
Everybody's taking part in it. Whether they're high priests, whether they're Levites, whether they're temple servants, whether they're just the people of Israel, everybody is taking part in this endeavor. And it is of a spiritual nature. Because this is a sacred place. Let us build the sheep gate. Let us hang its doors. And then let us dedicate it to the Lord. Lord, we are doing this for your honor and for your glory. We bless you, our great and almighty God, by the work that we are performing unto you. This is being done unto the Lord in honor of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord, for the reputation of the Lord. This is done for the subsequent, for the, the coming generations. And we see how it is that Jerusalem is viewed within the Scripture in a number of different passages. And by all means, there's some that you can look at yourself as well. But in, in uh, Psalm 51, for example, which we'll go to in just a minute, one writer wrote, The walls of Jerusalem function as a protective barrier so that the righteous sacrifices might be offered in its walls. Because what's going on inside of Jerusalem is sacred. It is sacred because what goes on within the walls of Jerusalem is, is worship prescribed by the Lord, that its righteous sacrifices will be offered unto the Lord as a soothing aroma to the God who redeemed them. What goes on in this city is true worship of the one true God. Nowhere else, in, not even in Israel, not in any other part of the world, is this kind of worship going on. This is the only place in which they were to come three times a year as commanded by the Lord to offer sacrifices in the temple that they would all gather and feast before the Lord and and delight in the Lord and, and all of that that we find in the law. Was the Lord being worshipped throughout Israel? Yes. Was Jerusalem a special place? More so than the other places of worship within Israel? Absolutely. The psalmist says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Why? Because this is the place that He has put His name and this is the place that He calls His people to on those pilgrimage feasts and and. and this is where he is to be worshipped. It is a special place unto the Lord. And a few of these passages, and again, there are many. <clears throat> this is one of David's, or this is David's psalm of, of great confession. After, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, after he had had her husband killed, this is his confession unto the Lord. So we read passages like this in this psalm, beginning of verse 18. <clears throat> Listen to the language. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering, the young bulls, will be offered on your altar. Rebuild the walls in view of the righteous sacrifices that are going on in here. What we had opened with in Psalm 48, 
Let's read it again. Psalm 48, beginning of verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. Listen to that language. So in the context of David's confession, <clears throat> he, he brings about that relationship of the, the pers personal righteousness, the, per the righteous sacrifices that are being offered unto the Lord and the national security of building the walls. And all of that is brought together. One writer said it becomes a guiding light for subsequent generations, including Nehemiah's. There are many passages, many psalms that describe the glory and the honor of Zion, of the city of God. Because this is the place in which God has placed His name. This is the place that God has made His presence known within the temple, within the Holy of Holies. It is a sacred place. The completeness, again, of building the walls in view of the sacredness of the city reflects the greatness and the honor of God. Instead of diminishing His glory by people coming into the city and looking at the city, this is the city of the great God. His walls are torn down. His gates have been burned. They, the, nothing has been restored here. This is the city? This is the city that I've heard of? The honor of the Lord was at stake here. Not that God's glory was diminished, because God always uh, has, ha, God has intrinsic glory, glory that belongs solely to Him that He has, regardless if anyone else ascribes to Him glory. His intrinsic glory is the sum of all the divine attributes of who He is, that He retains and He needs no one else to be who He is. He doesn't need it, but in view of what He has done for His people, in redeeming them, in view of the relationship that He has entered into with this particular people that He has called out of all the nations of the earth, in view of the truth that He has disclosed to them of truly revealing Himself, the only God who exists, who actually has revealed Himself to this people, in view of all the things that God has done, it is responsibility on the part of the people to, to honor the Lord in such a way that the nations would see the glory and the honor of Jerusalem, the city of God. So it is indeed God's honor that is at stake here. It isn't just, let's build some walls, let's build some gates back. There's more to it, much more. Let us show the honor of God. Let us show the nations the greatness of our God. The truth that we proclaim, let us put it into practice and let us demonstrate the greatness of God. It is indeed a sacred place. A sacred place that everyone is zealous to take part in the building of. 
Now, you see again the unity of the people of God in doing this. Perhaps their zeal had waned over time. And that's, that's one reason, by the way, that's one reason why we need to constantly be reflecting and, and immersing ourselves in, in, in God's truth that our zeal for God doesn't wane. Because if we get ourselves away from the truth of God, from, from, underst- from, from knowing His, His majesty and His glory but through the pages of Scripture, whenever we ignore those things and we get away from it, then we tend to lose what, what we have already learned. It tends to be forgotten real easy. And so when that occurs, then the next things that occur after that is, is our serving of the Lord starts becoming less and less and less. But if we continually immerse ourselves within the Word of God, within the truth of God, reminding ourselves of the God that we serve, we could go on and on making descriptions of, of who God is. When we do that, then our zeal and our delight to serve Him only grows and continually grows. The people had a time in which maybe it had stalled. Nehemiah is sent there. Nehemiah stirs them up once again. And it's almost like a little small revival there, isn't it? Everybody says, yes. Let's, let's arise and build. After hearing what Nehemiah has to say. Let us arise and build. What did Nehemiah say? If we remember, in chapter 2, verse 17, he says to the people, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer be a reproach. Yes, let's do it. Let us arise and build. So they act with one mind. They act with one heart. They're acting with one purpose. Everyone is doing their part, though we read of some of the nobles that did not take part in this. And it's the nobles who dwell in the land of the Tekoites, who are at more of the southern part of Israel, maybe in the same area of, of one of the governors that has already given them grief. So maybe they're intimidated. Maybe that's why they're not lending their hand to do any of the work. Maybe that's why they're not supporting it. But everybody else is. There's always going to be some who will not lift a finger to do anything because maybe they're intimidated by those on the outside. Maybe they're fearful of doing something for fear of what would come if they did. But these are awakened out of their slumber. They're revived. They're stirred within their souls to accomplish this, this work of the Lord. It's going to be hard. It is hard work. It isn't easy work. But even in the great difficult work that we have, that they specifically had, it's physical labor. They delighted in doing so and delighted not only to build their own places, but to go to another section and build over there. Because God's honor was more important to them than their own 
immediate comfort. They got tired. They grew weary, as we all would, with continuous physical labor. But that didn't stop. That didn't stop their enthusiasm. That didn't stop their zeal. They pressed on because there was a goal in mind. And when they had accomplished their goal, and God would be honored by it. And so that's what they did. All of these that are named, all of these that worked on the gates, all of these that worked on the walls, they were united. They were united in truth, united in purpose, united in their love for God. And they accomplished what they set their minds to do. What they had set their heart to do for the glory of God, they accomplished it. Notice that. In order to have true unity, you must have ingredients like that. United in truth. People say this all the time, and it's nothing more than a lie. But they say, well, we're united and we're united in love. We need to be united together in love. If your love isn't grounded in truth, then you don't have unity. You have a superficial unity that at the moment you begin talking will become evident that you're really not united. I think of this story, with, and you probably heard it, where R.C. Sproul had some that, uh, when he, I think it was in the late 60s, he had some missionaries over to his house. It was a particular group, I can't remember the name of them, but they were Pentecostals. But they come from, from various denominations of Methodists and Catholics. And so they kept talking about this to him, about how united that they were. You know, we don't, we don't get into that other stuff. We're just we're united in, in, in the glory of God, to serve God and all this sort of thing. He asked one question. And that one question put everybody at odds. Are you saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. One question. And then they started bickering and arguing. The Catholics obviously would have a different view of that versus some of the more Protestants, even though some of the Protestants would be differing with each other, which they did, especially if some of them believe that in baptismal regeneration that you have to be fully, or you have to be baptized to be fully saved. One question decimated their supposed unity. Unity is grounded in truth. Unity is grounded not in personal ideas, not in relative ideas. Well, you may have your thoughts and I have mine, but we can still come together. No, we cannot. Not when it comes to the important things, the most important things concerning God and Christ and salvation. We have to be united in what, and, and the grounds of that, that unity is the Word of God. What you see here is what we find, of course, throughout all the New Testament, is the call to unity among the people of God. Now, 
The Apostle Paul says this very, very plainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Even in his rebuke of them, what is he calling them to? Beginning in verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. There's factions going on in the church of Corinth at that time. People are following after various leaders, and so they're at war with each other. And so the Apostle Paul calls them to unity, be of the same mind, of the same judgment. He tells the church of Philippi, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love. How does he say to do that? Well, he gives the great example of humility that is found in Christ that you all prefer one another above yourselves. You're grounded in truth, first and foremost, in order to have true unity. And then you prefer others above yourself. You be of the same mind and judgment concerning the things of God, concerning the the calling of God. Remember this, that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we read this truth concerning all believers. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Or it's actually meaning, you could translate that word by with the word with. For with one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. There is one spirit that unites all believers. There is one head of the body, which is Christ Jesus, who unites all the believers. There is one father of us all, who unites all believers. There is one written revelation of God, That is the foundation of all of those things as well, of our understanding of God, of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, and that is the Word of God. All unity must be grounded within the Word of God concerning what the Word of God says about who God is, about who Christ is, about what Christ did, about salvation, about the Holy Spirit. All of these things we must be united on, and so the ground of all this must be the Word of God. It doesn't matter what ideas that we have or how fanciful that they may seem or how wonderful that they are, unless... Those things are grounded within the Word of God. It is never going to bring us together. It is necessary that the people of God remove any particular ideas that they have and go to the Scripture to find out what ideas we should have. And then we can have unity. True unity. And then we prefer one another above ourselves. Now how do we do that? We really don't like to do that. We like to war with each other about who, who has priority. Who's more important. You know, we hear all the time how we ought to be humble. How we ought to walk before the Lord in humility. God draws near the humble. He opposes the proud. We hear that all the time. How do we cultivate humility? We hear the call to it, but our initial response to any given situation is, 
looking out for number one first. And as long as whatever it is agrees with me first or is good for me, then we can do it. That's our natural thought process. That's how we naturally think. But that's not how the people of God acted even in this great endeavor that they had. Again, no one's complaining about they have to do this section and then they had to go do another section, but this person over here only built one section of the wall. How do you cultivate humility? How do you cultivate that attitude of preferring others above yourself? Well, they're busy with that. Maybe that was their ideas. Maybe they're busy with that, but I'm free. I've already built that one over there. Let me go over here and just do this. Let me not just stand here and wait for them to get done and then call them to go over here and join me. That way everybody's doing the equal parts here. No one's doing more than the other. They preferred one another above themselves because they were humble. They walked in humility. How do you cultivate that in your own life? Well, the Apostle Paul gives us that answer too. And it is necessary that we recognize the truth of what he is saying in Philippians 2. Here's how you cultivate humility, which is necessary for the unity of the body of Christ. Let's just start in verse 1 because this is all in view of that. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, listen to all that language. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Here's how you do it. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does he point the people to? in order to develop the very characteristics that he is speaking of and calling them to. He points to Christ. He said, have the same attitude which was in Christ Jesus. He existed in the form of God. He was equal with God in the sense of, of having all the, the divine prerogatives sitting on his cosmic throne, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, enjoying, enjoying that personal, intimate fellowship, that inter-Trinitarian relationship. Perfect love, perfect unity, perfect fellowship, perfect communion. And he leaves his seat of glory in the sense of he adds humanity to his being. And instead of the great king who sits on his cosmic throne, who has the authority to rule over all, that all is subject to him, instead what does he do? He takes on the form of man. He adds humanity to his being and he becomes a servant. 
not a great king over the entire earth of which he will in one, one day at the consummation of all things. But at this particular point, he takes the form of a servant. The one who spoke creation into existence, who said, let there be, and it was. The one who has all power. This one, this glorious one who dwells in unapproachable light, takes the form of man and becomes a servant. Not only to serve the Father, to complete His will, to do His will, but He serves the people that He has created. He serves them in the greatest way imaginable, not only through His life and the things that He taught and the things that He did and how He cured their diseases and how He cured their illnesses and how He did all the wonderful miracles that He did, but He goes to the cross. And he serves his people in the greatest capacity by saying, let your sin be upon me. I will take the punishment of this. I will endure the wrath of my father in your place. If the greatest in existence, of whom we have no comparison to, can take the form of a servant and to serve his creatures, How can we elevate ourselves above him and say, I ain't serving anyone, but they will serve me. Who are we in comparison to him? This is what he did. This is what we should be doing in light of who he is and his being and what it is that he has done. And he done it on our behalf. He done it for us. How can we not with zeal in our hearts and with a delight look at Him and say, let me live my life as you. Let me honor others and serve others as you did. For you are my great King. You are my only Sovereign. You are my Savior and my Redeemer. You are the most precious one in existence to me. My greatest treasure. Let me honor you by serving others as you did. Preferring others in the greatest way. Obviously, our serving and our giving of ourselves will never compare to what he did. But he left us an example that we ought to follow in serving one another and preferring one another. And so when we go back to the unity that the body of Christ is to have, ultimately the entire body is to have it. But especially the local body. The local body should be grounded in truth and grounded in such a love for one another that we prefer each other above ourselves. Remembering what Christ did. Remembering who He is. And not demanding anything of anyone. But being willing to give. For the benefit of all. We have one Spirit that unites us. One Head. One Father. One written revelation that unites all of us. And the fact of us being united by the Spirit of God gives us an even greater bond than any other in existence. We are united together by the God who dwells within us. The same God dwells in all who are genuine believers in Christ. The same God is the one who brought us out of death, out of darkness, who breathed into us the breath of spiritual life. The body of Christ must be united. As Paul tells Timothy 
in 1 Timothy, taking from those Old Testament symbolism and applying it to the New Testament church. We are a building unto God. We are the household of God. We are the temple of the living God. And the way in which we present ourselves to the rest reflects the glory and the honor of God who called us. The way that we demonstrate our character in the places that we are, various places of work or whatever, within your families. Remembering that you are the temple of the living God and the household of God and the building of God. The way that you present yourself reflects the glory and the majesty of the God whom you claim. There are many lessons here for us out of this passage of a list of names. They, they, they were intent on one purpose and they accomplished it because they were united. A church is only as strong as its people And the things that should be within the local church is truth, love, zeal to serve God. And if we can have those things and more, then we can accomplish whatever the Lord has for this local church to do in light of his entire plan of furthering his kingdom. So let us be united together. Let us all bring our hammers and let us all be at work for the glory and the honor of God. Let us be disciplined in ourselves that as part of the household of God that we honor Him and have a zeal to honor Him in the way in which we conduct our lives so that others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The good works of these people whose names we will never remember shone bright because of their truth that they were grounded in, the love that they had for their Lord, the commitment they had for Him, and the zeal to honor Him. Let us take example from these and perform the same unto our Lord. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Father, thank you once again for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for all that it teaches us. Father, I pray that indeed we will be united, united in your truth, the truth of your word, that we would all be seeking after it, seeking greater knowledge of who you are, that we would cultivate a greater love for you and a greater love for one another. Father, use us. Use us to further your kingdom. Use us to bring others uh, out of the kingdom of darkness into your marvelous light. Use us as your instruments. Father, stir within our hearts such a great delight for you that regardless of what it is that we do for you, that it's never done grudgingly or done bitterly because maybe others aren't doing what we're doing. But let us understand that each has their place. Each are placed in the body as you have saw fit to perform the tasks that were given to them and the tasks that were given to us. 
Let us delight in serving you and serving one another. Have your way within our hearts to accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you all for your attention. You are dismissed.